Hi, this is Scott Snibby, host of A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment. My new book, How to Train a Happy Mind, shares the accessible approach to Buddhism familiar to podcast listeners. It features a foreword by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and you can order it right now in print, ebook, or audiobook just about anywhere you buy books. In May, I'm doing two special events in New York City, one with musician and artist Laurie Anderson, and another with DJ Spooky. Both events can also be streamed online. Go to our website at skepticspath.org for more details on the book and tour. I'm Scott Snibby, and this is A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment, where we explore how Buddhist ideas can fit into the modern lives of ordinary people. Today I'm talking to Tenzin Choki, who dives head-on into the challenging topics of hierarchy, patriarchy, gender, and sexism in Buddhism. As a practicing Buddhist since the 1970s, who spent 20 years as a nun, ordained by His Holiness the Dalai Lama himself, she has deep, hard-won insights into these topics. Tenzin Choki is one of the most thoughtful, independent thinkers I know, and a person of extraordinary integrity, who has dedicated her life to both inner development and advancing fairness and equality in the outer world. I think you'll enjoy listening to our conversation just as much as I enjoyed being a part of it. So Tenzin Choki, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast. You and I have been friends and I've had the pleasure of taking your teachings and being on retreat with you. So thank you so much for joining us on A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment today. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Scott. I really look forward to our conversation because we have so many interesting topics to talk about today. So to start, I'd love if you could, sorry to ask you about your whole life story, but (laughs) could you talk a little bit about your history with Buddhism, how you became a Buddhist, your time as a Buddhist nun? Sure, yeah, and I'll try and encapsulate really briefly because it kind of begins... When I was a hippie teenager, I was fortunate enough to be on the back end of the baby boomer generation. And in the early 70s, there were a lot of teachers like Ram Das had just returned from India and published Be Here Now. And Mari Shimashiogi was teaching Transcendental Meditation, and that was available even in suburbia where I was growing up. So I started meditating, doing TM meditation when I was 14 or 15. And just opened up the whole world of Eastern contemplative methods to me, which I hadn't had any access to. This is like early 70s we're talking about now. So I kind of read everything I could get my hands on. And I remember when I read my first book about Buddhist philosophy, which was some kind of really bad translation of Edward Conzi or something like that. But I just said, oh, that's what I am. This totally makes sense to me. And I'd been raised without really, my parents had been raised Christian, but that's not really how we were raised. We didn't go to church. You know, we were raised kind of more secular, materialist more than anything. So when I read about Buddhism, and especially the Bodhisattva path, I was just had such an attraction. So I became a theoretical Buddhist long before I became a practicing Buddhist, which happened later, around 1979, a friend introduced me to a Buddhist, a Japanese Buddhist practice. And then many years later, I felt like I really needed a personal teacher. 
And His Holiness the Dalai Lama had just won the Nobel Prize. This is about 1990 and was in the news. And I thought, oh, if there's anybody I can really trust, I had some total attraction to His Holiness, even though I'd never met him or even seen, you know, a TV program or seen him just from reading about him. So in 1991, I bought a one-way ticket to India to seek out the Dalai Lama. And I naively thought, oh, we'll just be able to sort of sit and hang out and figure out my life. I always say I was going through kind of an early midlife crisis. I was in my mid-30s at that point and ended up finally seeing His Holiness, not, you know, meeting one-on-one at that point, but seeing him and being exposed to Tibetan Buddhism. So that's when my journey of Tibetan Buddhism really started was 1991, after being theoretically a Buddhist for almost 20 years by then, but not really practicing with a teacher or a lineage or really receiving teachings just from books and things. So that's kind of the short version of how I got into Buddhism. And do you want to talk a little bit about your time being ordained? Yeah, sure. So, so I, I got involved in Tibetan Buddhism at Tushita Meditation Center in Dharamsala, where His Holiness lives, where I'd gone to seek him out and studied and practiced there for about a year and a half and then came back to the States and had met Lama Zopa Rinpoche at a Kopan course. And he'd asked me to be the director of Vajrapani Institute at that point or the co-director at that point with Rich Prince. So I came back to the States and then worked in administrative positions for the FPMT for the next 10 years, or almost 10 years, eight years, eight or nine years, and then was really feeling the wish to go into long retreat and consulted with Lama Zopa, and he said it would be good for me to do three-year retreat. So I was still a layperson at this point, went into long retreat, and it was the third year of my first three-year retreat that somehow I just realized if I was really serious about this path, that becoming ordained, becoming a monastic, just made the most sense in terms of simplicity and focus. And so that's when I decided to become a monastic was the third year of my first retreat. And then I continued retreat for three more years and made a quick trip to India to get ordained with His Holiness the Dalai Lama kind of in between retreats. (laughs) So that was the story. And then practiced as a monastic for 20 years until just last year when things just shifted again and it felt like my time as a monastic was coming to an end. So you spent something like seven years in retreat? Yeah, two, one was the traditional Mm three-year, three-month, 30-day. And then after that, I did another retreat, which wasn't specifically for that amount of time, but it ended up being another three years. It was just sort of open-ended, the second one. I had just, at the end of the traditional three-year retreat, I had written to Lama Zopa Rinpoche and talked a little bit about what was happening for me in meditation and feeling like I wanted to continue. And then that's when he advised me to go to Shinilan, the retreat center in, in Big Sur, on the coast near Big Sur. And I ended up meditating there for another three years. So it was basically between... March of 2000 and something like July of 2006. I was mm-hmm. mostly in retreat. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for a lot of people, um, the idea of a retreat might seem like a total nightmare, <laughs> you know, <laughs> being, being alone and isolated for even for a few days or something. You obviously have a 
a great propensity for that type of practice. To someone who's never even done a retreat, I wonder if you could give a flavor of yeah. what you got out of that. Right. What's the benefit of that much time practicing, practicing. and being alone? Yeah. And yes, it was completely terrifying. Like before I did it, I was completely committed to doing it. And that also goes way back to the early 70s. I remember reading in Ramdas and Be Here Now about, you know, yogis meditating in caves in the Himalayas. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't even know you could be a yogi meditating when you grew up, you know. And I had a strong attraction to that. So when it came about, and I was completely terrified. The thought of being in solitary confinement with my mind for that amount of time, I had no idea what was going to happen. And it was amazing. Some of the most, I think, for me, the most amazing things in my life were becoming a teacher and becoming a monastic. And neither one of those may have happened if I hadn't been in long retreat. I feel like both of those things were a ripening at that time. Because the purpose of retreat is really to minimize or eliminate the distractions of daily life and projects and so on, so you can focus on practice exclusively. And one of the things I found, which I've compared with a lot of other people that have been in long retreat, like our friend Venerable Renee and other people, there's this thing that happens after about six months, and it seems like plus or minus six months for almost everybody. Your mind is just spinning out all the Things And it takes about that much to really settle so that all the distractions kind of... And what I found for the first six months of retreat, too, is just almost like reliving my entire life, just replaying all the scenes and sort of... I always feel like they say your life flashes before your eyes when you fall off a cliff or something. This is like my life flashing before my eyes, but it took six months to just replay every single thing, <laughs> which can be really hard. And then your mind settles and you're able to go really deeply into practice. And so I found there was a real deep settling that doesn't happen for me when I'm engaged in daily activity and there was, it took that amount of time. I mean, any amount of time in retreat is beneficial. Like a weekend is beneficial. Two weeks is beneficial. No question about it. But there is something about really signing off. A friend of mine who is a monastic was at her end of life when I came out of retreat and I had said something to someone or been interviewed or something about going into long retreat felt like dying. And it just felt like when you go into retreat for like two weeks, you put everything on hold. But for three years, you really have to just wrap everything up and start over again when you come out. And there's a way of just closing up your activities that to me felt a lot like a preparation for the end of life. And you also know you're going to come out completely different than when you went in. And so the re-entry part can be really hard too, because the way you relate to people has completely changed. So much about your own life and mind has completely changed. So all of those parts make it hard and really beneficial at the same time. And it is it is certainly not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> I always feel like, you know, they say your best quality and your worst quality is the same. And for me, I think it's stubbornness slash determination. Like it kept me in you know, the dark night of the soul over and over again during long retreats was that determination to just see it through. But also having the guidance of my teachers saying it was the best 
thing to do mm-hmm. really helped a lot because I think if it had been just up to me deciding without their guidance, I would have just given up because it's, yeah. there were times it was so hard and just so much insight into my own mind. A friend of mine, when I came out of retreat, I saw a friend at Land of Medicine Buddha and I, I remember this story because we're together in the dining room and then everybody else left the dining room and she leans over to me like, hey, nobody else is here. It's just me. You can tell me the real truth about what happened. And she said, what happened in retreat? Like, what was the most significant thing? And I said, you know, I think I just learned to make friends with myself. And she just burst into tears. I mean, she was expecting me to say the tantric deity, visions of, you know, the pure realms. And it was like just being in solitary confinement with your mind like that. You have to learn to just accept deeply who you really are and make friends with yourself or it's just too painful. And I think I realized the extent of my self-criticism and you know, self-judgment and really had to get over it. And it was so profound. It was so profound that. And also another real advantage of long retreat and other people that have been in retreat have shared this too. You're completely isolated from any kind of ego gratifying feedback. Like we're always looking for little hits of ego gratification. Like you smile at someone, so they'll smile it back at you and you'll feel good about yourself. And there's something about solitude that just strips all of that away, which is also extremely hard. We don't realize how addicted we are to all of those little moments that make us feel good about ourselves. So that was another piece that was really profound about long retreat for me too. Yeah. And it's even with our Buddhist teachers too, you know, at least for me, you know, wanting the teacher to smile at you. Totally. And think you're special. Somebody was talking about you. We were, Kadrila was just at Land of Medicine, but I didn't attend, but you went one day and a friend of mine who went said, oh, I just had to look at my mind the whole weekend going, oh, am I special? Is she going to give me that look? Is she going to smile at me? Is she going to, you know, single me out somehow for special treatment? (laughs) We totally do it with our teachers too. No, I know I do. Yeah. Well, (laughs) you know, we mostly wanted to talk today about the relationship of Buddhism and Buddhists to authority and hierarchy, which I think you have a a great interest in. And I've I've been thinking a lot about myself. Can you start by talking a little bit about what the Buddha originally taught about authority and about critical thinking, and then maybe compare that to how Buddhist institutions have codified those teachings into the various structures and hierarchies that we've ended up with over the centuries. Yes, absolutely. This is something I think about so much of the time. And so, you know, the Buddha is famously quoted as saying that one should check the teachings and not believe what the Buddha said just because he was the Buddha. There's this metaphor of somebody buying gold and like instead of just taking the word of the goldsmith, but testing and biting and melting and doing all the things to test. So Buddhism really prizes that kind of critical thinking in theory, but Buddhism evolved and developed in cultures that were very hierarchical and had strong traditions of respect towards elders and authority figures. And so this attitude really influenced the ways that were viewed, I think, when we question aspects of Buddhism. So in a way, it can kind of be a culture clash 
And it's sometimes hard to distinguish between what's Buddhism and what's culture. I just listened to an interview with Ezra Klein and Joseph Henrik, who's one of the founders or just wrote a book on this theory in psychology called the, the weird theory and weird. It, it comes from some researchers who, who realized that a lot of psychological research is done on American college students who may not be tri- typical of human psychology in general. So a lot of these broad conclusions are done on the basis of usually male, you know, 19-year-old American college student, but how representative is that? And then they came up with this theory called the weird theory saying that Americans or North Americans, because I think it includes Canadians too, are weird stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And in terms of a bell curve of human experience, that's way off on one extreme. And so when you compare cultures, there are certain values that are typical of weird cultures, right? These Western, industrialized, educated, democratic, including, you know, we're more individualistic. We like to flatten hierarchy. We believe in equality. There's certain kind of universal morals like equality and fairness and honesty. And more traditional cultures value things like loyalty and hierarchy, right? So you see this, and I've, I've experienced this myself. When you question something the teacher says, you're seen as disloyal from that frame of reference of traditional culture, whereas that's something that we just value in, you know, modern Western culture. We have these values of equality and honesty and fairness and you know, reducing harm is a high value. So that helped me understand sometimes the struggle that I felt personally being very steeped in weirdness, <laughs> according to that, you know, in, in my own cultural values, sometimes at odds with just the way that Buddhist institutions, which are still operating on different cultural values, you know, tend to operate. So that's something that I think is really important for us to figure out. They say that when Buddhism spread to different countries, originally it took usually, I've I've heard academics talk about this, takes about 200 years before the form of Buddhism Hmm. melding with the culture of the place and some of the worldview of the, you know, indigenous people of the place and so forth manifest, for example, when Buddhism traveled to China, it kind of merged with Taoism and became Chan, which later became Zen. So I think we're still in the early days of that transmission, really, in the so-called West. And so we have certain cultural values. We have a worldview of looking at things through a psychological lens and through the lens of Western science, for example. So how is Buddhism going to adapt culturally in a way that's going to make it accessible to the most amount of people. Because I see, you know, a lot of very, very traditional expressions and practices of Buddhism aren't appealing so much to younger generations. And it would be a shame if these amazing transformative contemplative methods got lost just because of these cultural barriers and things that modern people find a hard time relating to, like the very rigid hierarchy and just 
what feels like blind obedience to the teacher and blind faith and things like that that are I think are just more cultural than anything. Yeah. And what's your personal experience with that, especially as a woman, and especially 20, 30 years ago, it was much more pronounced of seeing a a, a bunch of men, <laughs> you know, very strong male Buddhist leader, all men yes. who had the privileged position yeah. on the stage, <laughs> various kind of demotions applied to the women in the female sangha and yeah. so on. Can you talk about your own direct experience yeah. with those that cultural difference? Well, you know, it was interesting. It became more, I mean, I noticed it as a lay person, but it became much more pronounced in terms of my personal experience when I became a monastic. And I wasn't really expecting that. You know, lay people just sort of sit where the lay people sit and, you know, in the teaching there at a different place than the monastics or behind the monastics or whatever, but they were all mixed together. But then suddenly in certain situations as a female monastic, I was expected to sit behind all the male monastics or go next in line or something like that. And there was just a way that it was just so not my experience, even though I grew up kind of before the first waves of feminism, but I've been a feminist my entire adult life and always really held gender equality as a high value. So suddenly I had a choice of either like I make a fuss or I accept that this is the way that this is. And I remember it came out really strongly when His Holiness the Dalai Lama was teaching in Tucson in 2005. And because of this layout of the room, like a lot of rooms, female monastics will be on one side and male monastics on the other. And all of these young people were kind of freaking out and coming up to me and going like, oh my gosh, what is that? It was like we were, you know, relegated to sitting in the back of the bus. And that didn't sit well at all with these young people. And I was a little bit like, really, we're still doing this here? So I have had more experiences of that. There's been times in Asia where I've been told I can't enter a room because of my gender, which, you know, would set me off and I would have a mental affliction attack. I remember my first monastic confession, which is called Sojong at His Holiness the Dalai Lama's temple in Dharamsala, and I was like so excited to go. And then when I went, I saw how the young Tibetan nuns were being treated by the Tibetan monks, and it was just outrageous. And I just got angry and said, well, I can never come here again. Here I'm going to confess, and it's just making me just feel really angry. So I've had more of those experiences, sadly, when I became a monastic, and and especially in the traditional places in in Asia, like I'm not even allowed in this space because of who I am. So yeah, so that's that's hard. That's hard. I think a lot of our teachers who taught a lot in the so-called West and, you know, understand more about our values, really try and do things to equal things out. But I still look at the resistance to reintroducing full ordination for female monastics into the Tibetan tradition, and all of this research has been done to show how it could happen, and it's still not happening. And I think it's just, you know, there's a lot of resistance to women being seen as equal, sadly, in the tradition. That may be worth unpacking for people not familiar with that. You want to explain full ordination and how how the lineage kind of fell off in Tibetan Buddhism and how 
we're trying to reestablish it. Yeah, that's right. So in many, many countries, the lineage for full ordination for Buddhist female monastics or nuns either was never transmitted because there were never enough nuns in the country, or it was broken at a certain point. And the sad backstory to why it was sometimes broken was that it was always seen as more merit for the lay people to offer food and requisites to monks than to nuns. So in times of famine, the monks would still be given food, but the nuns had the choice to either give their vows back and start working or starve. And so that's the kind of history of why the monastic order for nuns, for example, in South Asia, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Burma, apparently there was a robust you know, fully ordained nuns community, and then the lineage was broken, and it only survived in Chinese Buddhist countries like mainland China, I think parts of Vietnam, parts of Korea, the full ordination for nuns survived. There's some debate whether it was ever transmitted to Tibet or not, whether there were ever enough fully ordained nuns that crossed the Himalayas into Tibet, but there are ways to reintroduce it, but there's been a lot of resistance. It has been reintroduced in South Asia, especially successfully in Sri Lanka. Starting in 1999, they did an ordination actually in Bodh Gaya to revive the lineage for fully ordained female monastics. And also in Thailand, there's a robust community, still doesn't receive all the you know, as much support from the lay people in the in the monastic community as as one would hope. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of the teachings we get on, like for, for example, the Bodhisattva teachings, tell us the great benefits of hardships, like you're describing. <laughs> you know that when people harm us, it helps us to practice patience. And and I think a lot of my nun friends talked about the injustices, like you've talked about, as oh, it's traditional, and I'll bear this. It'll help me be patient. How much of that, how much of those experiences did you take as a helpful lesson in patience? And how much of it have you, did you try to be an activist about and to change? Well, it's interesting because I've heard there, there's been a big division in the Theravada monastic community also about the reordination of nuns or like reviving that lineage of ordination. And I remember one of my Theravada monk friends once saying, Oh, but it's such good training for your ego. Like, why would you want to be fully ordained? And I said, okay, if it's so great, you guys sit in the back of the bus Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and we'll sit in the back of the bus Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Like, if it's that great of training, why don't we all <laughs> do that from time to time? So, yes, of course, there's always value in that. But I think for me, my whole life, just fairness is just such a huge value. And when something just feels so fundamentally unfair on the basis of something like skin color, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity and expression, all those things, that's when I'm like, okay, well, I can practice with this. But it's just so discouraging for all of those groups that aren't able to, I mean, think of all of the people of color who are denied higher education mm -hmm. in our own country for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and all of the geniuses that were relegated to enslavement and picking cotton that yeah. could have solved these huge problems. I mean, to me, it's just a no-brainer that you give everybody equal opportunity for whatever they aspire to, you're going to have a better society and a better culture. So if there's women who really aspire to full ordination to take on 
the benefit of all of the extra vows because they're the same teachers that, you know, denigrate full ordination for women are also the ones saying how karmically beneficial it is to take on vows. So how come it's true for monks and not for nuns? Like if it's that beneficial, which I believe it really is, is such an incredible training for the mind. Actually, the the vows train the mind better than just putting up with inequality. I mean, I think the actual container of training of the full ordination with all of the incredibly settled vows about deportment, I mean, I see that as this incredible training that then is denied to half the population just on the basis of gender. So that, to me, you know, overwhelms the the idea that it's really good for us to accept our second class step. <laughs> well, you're very you, Tibetan Buddhists tend to be very skilled in debate, and that's it's a very I, I like your method. Like, wow, it's so beneficial to be at the back of the teachings, and why don't why don't the monks take their turn equally? We're depriving you of that privilege. Yeah, I want to keep talking about these cultural differences. So because Buddhism developed in a feudal systems of monarchy, absolute power, usually male power. And I want to talk a little bit about people get down a little bit on Western culture. But the Western Enlightenment, which is, you know, very different from Buddhist Enlightenment, was this kind of extraordinary innovation in human society, right? Advancing these values of democracy, liberalism, human rights, critical thinking, debate. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit of how the, about how these relatively new Western ideas intersect with the fundamental Buddhist teachings. You touched on them a little bit, but I think it's, it's nice to remind people, you know, especially people who are trying to change our current systems, what an innovation these Western systems were compared to feudalism. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. And and Stephen Batchelor, I yeah. I read something Stephen Batchelor wrote once and I found really interesting. And he was comparing the teacher-student or the guru-disciple relationship in Tibetan Buddhism to other kinds of Buddhism, especially ones that were more influenced by Chinese Confucian values. And he said in Tibet, there was definitely, speaking of feudal system, feudal lords and serfs. And so he said that teacher-student relationship in Tibet really evolved along those lines. You were completely dependent on the feudal lord for your very existence. And so this thing of bowing down and like seeing them as omnipotent in this way and all of that was really informed by that system. And then he said when he started practicing in Korea in Zen monasteries, he found that the teacher-student relationship was more familial because it was more informed by Confucian family structures, so it was more like a parent and the child than it was like the serf and the feudal lord. So that's something really interesting. But in terms of these kind of modern cultural values, yeah, I think it's too easy to dismiss them and say, oh, we should somehow go back to this traditional way of being and people there in collectivist cultures are so much happier and more balanced and all of that. And in some ways, that may be true. And some of these universal morals that evolved since the Enlightenment, I think, are not to be so lightly dismissed. I mean, the example I gave before of, like, do we tell the truth always? Because that's a cultural value that benefits everyone, not just your family, that you're going to be willing to lie to your family because you're loyal. 
I mean, that that's the kind of thing that we're talking about is just two value system sets almost. And I don't think we should just so easily dismiss. I mean, I've had people tell me, oh, you're brainwashed by Western cultural values or you're too attached to your Western cultural values. And I, I say, I'm very proud of my Western yeah. cultural values like fairness and equality and you know, non-harming and things like that, that I'm going to hold universally, no matter who's doing the harm, you know, whether it's, whether it's a Buddhist teacher or not. So I think we need to make peace with that. However, it's very interesting to look at how I think there are a couple of things. If Buddhism is too secularized, which I think is a danger, I think we need to take into account these cultural values and not dismiss them so easily. But I think we can make a mistake of being so hyper-rational that Buddhism gets reduced to some sort of sophisticated psychology, and then the transcendent goals of Buddhism are lost. And I see that happening in some, you know, Buddhist groups where suddenly meditation becomes about kind of personal insight into your psychology and not mm -hmm. insight into the nature of reality, and it gets reduced to psychology, and then nobody's really talking about liberation and enlightenment and, you know, samsara and karma and things like that. They, those are just seen as so difficult for Westerners to understand that they just get swept under the rug, and then I think you're losing the transcendent goals. But how do we somehow combine both the transcendent and our own secular modern values. And that's a hard, that's a tough question because we are very rational. One of my teachers, Geshe Tekchok, used to say to us, who's passed away, and when he was teaching at Land of Medicine Buddha, he used to say, you guys are really well educated. You won't just do something because I tell you to. You need to understand why. He goes, you have really sharp minds. That, you know, I think we really are trained in this critical thinking but I think it can become an obstacle for us, too, because there are certain benefits to collectivist things like rituals that make us feel part of a group. And we can't just say, oh, nothing happens for me when I'm kind of in a group chanting something. Well, yeah, on some subtle level, something does. So how do we find even rituals that are meaningful for us that introduce those soft values like belonging and feeling like part of a group and things like that because it's i think the mistake we make is our practice is too individualistic and we just go into the room and shut the door and then we're completely ignoring the third jewel of refuge which is spiritual community we're mm -hmm. taking refuge in buddha and dharma and just like oh yeah there's a third one i'll recite the prayer but i'm not really thinking about it but that is what I think keeps us going when it's really difficult is the connection we have and the support we get to others and just that feeling of belonging, which I think is what a religion does and what a, you know, psychological contemplative method doesn't do. I think there's some sense of belonging, but how do you do that and not bring the bathwater along with the baby to change the work, you know, and think that it means you know, taking on also an entire foreign culture and somehow becoming Asian or Tibetan or Chinese or whatever it is, and just taking on the whole package. And that's the exciting and difficult space that we are in these early days of Buddhism being transmitted to the West. Like, 
I think we're still in that process and it's still a lively conversation that I wish more people were having. I think you're having that conversation and that's sort of the basis of all that you're doing with the skeptic's path is very much, you know, trying to, trying to bridge those two systems and find the meeting points and the, and the benefits without anything getting lost in translation. Yeah. It's very confusing because you have this core Buddhist teaching that I think is so attractive to um, people in democracies, yeah. which is that you have to test it for yourself, right? The Buddha actually yeah. said, according to the sutras, yeah. you have to test everything I said for yourself. And if it's not valid, set it aside. Yeah. But then it really does feel at odds with the way that we're taught Buddhism, which does feel very moralistic. And I actually don't say this critically because I've benefited from this way of teaching. Like I'm actually just more describing it than criticizing it, that the way I learned it is very moralistic, very, very assured, you know, very assured and very clear. And hearing that from a Tibetan Lama, I think is fine. Actually, it makes sense. And then I can go home and think about, you know, whether what they said was true. But for me to share his <laughs> teachings, it would make no sense to say, yeah, you yeah. know, as a Dharma friend, you know, to, to say things in any even slightly moralistic way, you know, and so as people like us, you know, grow up and try to share the, the teachings, you know, more as peers with people than anything else. You know, that, that to me is the question. Like the Buddha was so clear about being critical and having debate. And yet the way it's taught and the way it's written about in our traditional sutras and commentaries and is quite moralistic and firm. Like what, can you riff on that a little bit? Yeah, what? Well, you know, what you're saying, Scott, makes me think of this system that was introduced to me a while ago by a Catholic priest. And it was based on a kind of a Christian interpretation of spiritual stages, John Fowler's stages of development, which was actually kind of correlates a little bit with Piaget's stages of development of of childhood to adulthood, but this is through the lens of spiritual practice. And it sort of talks about progression that in my own language, I would put from a very literal understanding of things to a much more nuanced, more figurative way of understanding things. And when I look back on my last 30 plus years in Tibetan Buddhism, because I too got all those very literal teachings and this is the four of this and the five of this and this is exactly how it works and you know. But I find that with lots of meditation and sort of integrating those ideas, there's a way of looking at them without rejecting them, but in a much more nuanced, more figurative way, which I think to me, and according to John Fowler's stages, is sort of a mark of spiritual maturity. And I think for a lot of people, we never survive that shift. Like we think we're losing our faith if we start looking at things in a more nuanced way, in a more figurative way. We're like, wait a minute, if I don't really believe in literal rebirth, like there's something that goes from body to body, body, there are different ways of looking at things like rebirth. There's different ways of looking at things like karma, just in a more figurative way. Instead of like, this is right and this is wrong and you believe this and you don't believe more black and white kind of concrete ways of looking at things. So sometimes I think that's a useful conversation to have too. You know, we have this solid, solid foundation in our tradition of the Lamrim, the stages of the path, which I value on a daily basis that I was introduced to that and it gave me such a solid framework 
But now I can look at the correlations with other traditions. I can look at things like morality, maybe in a, even compassion training in the Bodhisattva path in a more nuanced way. And I don't feel like I have to reject it. But, you know, the, the sort of concrete, literal way of thinking about things after a certain point just didn't work as well for me. And I needed to dive a little bit deeper and get a little bit more expansive in my views. And it's not easy to do, especially there isn't a lot of guidance for that process and a lot of people having that conversation. I think it's one of the things I've gotten out of doing this podcast because I've talked to people in different lineages and sub-lineages, and I think the the validity of the various Buddha, you know, Theravada and other types of Buddhism, they have different numbers of mental factors and different ways of, you know, different, <laughs> even the, the canonical lists we learn in Tibetan Buddhism have different numbers of things, and yet they seem to have also produced enlightened beings. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, I was talking to a friend about this the other day, yeah. and he was saying, he was comparing two teachings he'd gotten that involved visualization of chakras mm -hmm. and channels, and in one of them, the colors were one way, and then in another one, the colors were another way. And at first, he was really confused, and he's like, well, which one is it? Which is the right thing? And then he said he, he had an epiphany because he read the instructions that just said, not this is the way they are, but visualize them like this. Yeah. And then he realized, yeah. oh, this is just a practice I meant to visualize them in a certain way. And he realized for him, too, he was taking the instructions literally as this is actually the way they exist. And then it was like, oh, for this particular practice, just do it like this because it's skillful means in the moment for doing that practice. And I think that, you know, that more spacious way of approaching our practices can be helpful at a certain point, too. Yeah. There's something I read really early on when I was a Buddhist. Do you know this book, What Makes You Not a Buddhist? Oh, by, I um, love that book. Yeah. So in that book, it's like the one line that really sticks with me is, as long as you considers yourself a Buddhist, you are not yet a Buddha. <laughs> One of my, but I think it's very profound, right? Like yeah. that's, that's like emptiness, right? Like Buddhism itself, the Buddha, the Buddha didn't consider himself a Buddhist. Right? Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. Oh, I love that. I love yeah. that. As long as we're still attached to those kind. Well, it's yeah. like the, the old metaphor of like you use the boat to cross the stream yeah. and then you leave the boat behind because you're at the other side of the stream. And I think we don't think about things like that as much as we should. And then I think we create unnecessary obstacles for ourselves. I know some, so many people that I feel like gave up Buddhism because when things started to be less literal in their minds, which I think was a product of all of their meditation, they kind of didn't know how to cope with it and thought they were losing their faith. And then just laughter went on to the next thing because they didn't realize you know, there's this one, I don't know if I've shared with you, there's a story I heard from Tupton children who loved to do for a long time interfaith like dialogues with Christian nuns. And I remember when she was talking to this Christian nun who'd been ordained since she was like 16 or something, the way that it used to be. And she was in her 80, you know, mid 80s or older. And so Venerable Tupton children asked her, well, I'm sure in your, you know, 70 years of being a monastic, you've had the dark nights of the soul. Like, how did you survive? And this nun said something that I found so profound. She said, well, yeah, many times I would feel like I was losing my faith 
And she goes, but after a while, I realized that my grosser ways of thinking about things were dissolving. Mm -hmm. And I was going to land, I'm paraphrasing, land at a subtler way of understanding things. But in between, it kind of felt like free fall and like I didn't have any faith at all. But I realized, oh, that was a really good necessary step. And then soon, I, you know, through my practice, I'd come to a different subtler level of understanding and then stay there for a while until it happened again, until it happened again. And I took refuge in that story so many times in long retreat because I felt because of the intensity of the container of practice that that would happen so much more frequently than it does in my normal life that I'd somehow it just wasn't working for me the way even I'd look at some basic practice like refuge and it just kept transforming into a subtler and subtler understanding and it was really kind of remembering that story would keep me from completely freaking out when I feel like I'd lost my faith and this is the kind of conversations I wish we had more of because then it would make people realize oh just be patient and keep practicing and it'll all work out and just trusting yourself too and I think that's one of the things that you know speaking of our western cultural values sometimes people criticize our individualism but you know the kind of self-confidence that we have too and like trusting ourselves and trusting our own wisdom is another side effect I think of our culture that is not to be easily dismissed because it's in moments like that if I can just trust my own wisdom, then I know I'll be okay and I can just make my own choices. You know, I think sometimes that, like going back to the feudal sort of teacher-student relationship, we can become really dependent on our teachers in a, and sort of infantilizes us in a lot of ways. And then we don't develop our own wisdom. We're just asking our teacher every move to make. And then I don't think there's much wisdom in that either. No. What do you think about these big areas of non-overlap with, you know, the Western and Eastern culture like karma, rebirth, other realms? You know, people like Stephen Batchelor take a very extreme position that even those are cultural, <laughs> that maybe those aren't intrinsic to the Buddhist teaching. That's, it's quite a controversial perspective he takes. Yeah. But where do you land on, especially what was your journey with coming to understand those ideas and and how do you work with students you know over the years who with grapple that, with those ideas well you know funnily enough i didn't and it was only when i started teaching that i realized how hard those concepts are for people because for me it just made sense and mm -hmm. i think that was one of the reasons i was attracted to buddhism when i first started reading about it as a hippie teenager and I don't know if it's past life imprints or what but it's like oh this just makes more sense than anything else and I kind of relate to karma like, what is it, this second law of thermodynamics or something for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction or whatever it is. You know, so to me, it just kind of makes logical sense too. And I didn't have so much of a problem and a struggle with that. And lately, actually in my teachings, I'm kind of a big fan of His Holiness the Dalai Lama and nowadays I'm teaching a lot more from some of the secular contemplative science programs like cultivating emotional balance and the compassion training, just because, you know, I don't want to struggle and argue with somebody about karma. I just want to teach them to be more compassionate. And then hopefully when their heart softens, they'll treat people better and have a better life. And so I'm teaching less traditionally that kind of thing. 
But with people, I'd usually say, hey, does this give you a framework for thinking about your actions in a different way and maybe the impact of your actions and like the four qualities of a karmic action and how important intention is? So even when I would teach, I would think, you know, try and tell people it's not like this is the concrete way that it is. It's like this is just a perspective. And it's much more subtle than this, but if I use these four points when I'm considering any action, if I think about what's my intention, what's the object of that action, and, you know, take more into consideration, it'll really help me with my moral life. So I would teach it much more as kind of a practical strategy for approaching life, so much rather than like a concrete dogma of this is the way that it is. Even though I still, you know, when I think of myself and even how much my practice has changed, do I know that rebirth exists? No, but is it a working hypothesis that I'm quite happy to take on board for now? Yes. Does it help me? Not so much. Mostly I practice the way I practice because it makes me happier in this life. I don't have the looming fear of a hell realm hanging over my head. But, you know, it's just, again, a working hypothesis. And mostly I found, I had a, a student in New Zealand ask me that. It was when I was still a monastic. And it was about 10 years ago. And I was teaching a weekend retreat on something I can't even remember. And she said, if I could prove to you right now that there's no such thing in, as karma and rebirth, how would your life change? And I thought for like five nanoseconds, and I was like, I don't think at all. You know, living in a simple way and benefiting beings makes me happier than any amount of sex and drugs and rock and roll and all the different ways I've tried to find happiness in this life. You know, I don't think anything would really change. So I'm not doing it again because of the fear of, you know, in this sort of Calvinist Protestant way of like the fear of retribution. I'm living my life the way I do because I just find that through trial and error, it just actually gives me a happier this life too. And then if it helps me in the future lives, that's awesome too. Yeah. I mean, that that's where I think, at least for Western students, I do disagree a little bit with this, you know, the perspective in the Lam Rim that you have to give up yeah. concern for this life in order to, you know, fully that enter the That never made sense to like, me. Because yeah. I, I do think like the logic is there and it's how the His Holiness teaches. And again, you, you put it so crisply and simply that if someone were to prove karma and rebirth aren't true, you wouldn't change a thing. And yeah. and that's what His Holiness says, right? If you want to be happy, he says it even more simply, if you want to be happy, cherish others. Like if you want to be selfish, right. <laughs> if you want to be right. selfish, be intelligently selfish. And it turns out the way to selfishly pursue your happiness is to benefit others. Yeah. And you know, I think what the Lam Rim, well, what helped me a lot in understanding that admonition of the Lam yeah. Rim to not think about this life in cultivating emotional balance, we talk about kind of two domains of happiness. One we call hedonic happiness, which is the kind of happiness you just get from sensory experience and pleasant experiences and people and nice food and all of that. Nothing wrong with that. But then there's another domain that Aristotle coined the word eudaimonia, which we sometimes translate as genuine well-being. And that's, I think of it sometimes directionally, hedonic happiness is the happiness we get from what we can get from the world. Eudaimonic happiness is the happiness from what we can give back. So it's developing our inner qualities and acting out of kindness and compassion and altruism 
And just feeling like your life is meaningful and that special fulfillment you get. I was talking to a friend yesterday who does prison work and we were comparing like a day in prison is like 0% hedonic, 100% eudaimonic. Like you come out of prison, you're thirsty, you need to pee, you're starving because you can't take food, you know, all the things, you're exhausted and you're 100% fulfilled because you just did the most important thing with that day. And so when the law rim is like, don't think about this life, I think they're pointing more towards if you live a life 100% focused on hedonic happiness, what a waste. But I think if Lord Buddha had talked to Aristotle about eudaimonia, maybe the story would have changed a little bit because those are the kind of values and qualities and that's the kind of balance that for me gives me that happiness of this life that His Holiness talks about, like the happiness of service, the happiness of giving back the happiness of developing those inner qualities. Yeah, and that's where the mindfulness really is helpful because you start to, if you can just look at your mind while yeah. you're experiencing like a great sensory pleasure or while you're helping someone or benefiting someone else, I think you just, you start to see like there's subtle layers that, that the happiness of a sensual pleasure a big part of it is actually about being free from the attachment of wanting that thing. Like a lot, a lot of the, yes. the, a lot of the, at least I notice it myself, a lot of the pleasure I feel when enjoying any, and all kinds of sensual pleasures is actually more that free, freedom. When I really look closely at it, it's more the freedom from attachment for a little bit. Oh, than, I love that. Itself, you know? I love that. That's such a spin on what psychologists, there's a name for it. They call yeah. something like anticipatory pleasure. Yeah, like we have yeah. more pleasure when we're actually anticipating it. But I love your Buddhist spin of and also anticipating the freedom from attachment we'll feel when we actually have the experience. Because it's true. I mean, the first, you know, you're staring at the chocolate, gluten-free chocolate brownie in the case at cafe where you go every day. You know, and then by the time you're on the third bite, you're already on to the next thing and you're not even tasting it anymore. Like maybe the first bite is really good. But again, that's like the meeting of the anticipation with that momentary experience. But usually by the end of it, your mind is already off to the next object of attachment yeah. and you're fantasizing about that. So, and, and also, if you know, you know, I know I've known a lot of wealthy people in my life and a number of them, I think you have one person in particular is always trying to get someone to go have a beautiful meal with her, to go on a great vacation, to go pay pay for someone to enjoy this vacation she can enjoy, wow. to, have, to have a drink with her. You know, all of those things. It, I think just that, when you see that people yeah. who can afford anything, they're still hungry to share it. They, they don't just enjoy sitting there yeah, alone with their glass right. of wine. But they're, but they're hungry to yeah. share those things. And it's it's not just loneliness. It's actually compassion. It's And it's wanting yeah. to... Be generous and to share share that joy mm. and make someone else happy, right? Oh, beautiful. I, I wanted to get back to our discussion about activism and politics. When we when we were preparing for this episode, you shared that there's generally a rule that Buddhist monks and nuns can't be political, which may be maybe a little bit of a feudal leftover where you know you get killed for being political. So so what about the engaged Buddhism of Thich Nhat Hanh or Tibetan Buddhist protests over Tibetan autonomy in your own right. life. Can you talk a right. little bit about politics and Buddhism? Yeah, and that's a super interesting. I think of it on a couple of levels. One is, in the time of the Buddha, 
you know, the cultures were not representative democracies, so there's no such thing as voting and your voice being heard about things. They were mostly kings or like feudal, you know, kind of tribal republics and things. So the individual voice didn't really count for much. So there was that perspective. And then there were a lot of things in the monastic vows that some people have interpreted would apply to something like a campaigning for a specific political candidate, because there are specific things in the monastic vows about not sending, like running messages and errands for kings, ministers of state, householders, and a base kind of more general thing of not getting so involved in the activities of lay people. For example, you know, monastics, a couple of people have gotten off of jury duty because one of the vows is not passing judgment on lay people. We're mm -hmm. supposed to keep monastic activities and lay activities separate. There's also a danger in becoming partisan politically, vocally, and and like lobby or, you know, kind of campaigning for a specific candidate. And we found this a lot during the Trump years. Because you can't make assumptions about all the people in your Buddhist class. And if you're too political in terms of talking about specific candidates, you can lose people and then they'll get turned off from Buddhism because they think, oh, I have to be a lefty progressive to be a Buddhist. So that's a danger that I think is we have to be very, very careful as Buddhist teachers not to be too partisan vocally. However, for me, there is a big difference between that and actions that are harmful. Like, for example, one of the most meaningful experiences that maybe of life was going down to the border with a big interfaith contingent. It was when I was still a monastic during the whole child separation policy, the summer of 2018, and there was a huge contingent of religious leaders and, and other people who went down and we protested in front of a detention center and it united people across faith lines, across religious lines, across even political lines, because that was just so heinous. We saw these children being separated from their parents at, you know, these young ages, like four and five years old, and we all were just outraged. So for me, I can protest a harmful action, right? But I should be careful as a teacher being too vocal about partisan politics. So that's where I draw the line. Like if, if an action is harmful and there's something I can do about it, to me, I feel like I'm fulfilling my bodhisattva vow. But it's sort of like compassion training because people say, how can you have compassion for somebody who does some horrible thing? Well, I can have compassion for the person and really try and do my my utmost to stop them doing the harm they're doing. So it's sort of similar for me without lobbying specifically and getting into partisan politics for monastics, because then that may cross a line or turn people off or you get too involved in the activities of lay people. But definitely standing up against harm, I think, is also something for those of us that have taken bodhisattva vows that we absolutely have to do. So I think that's what Thich Nhat Hanh was doing. He was protesting the war in Vietnam and all of the ways that people were being treated. It was seen very politically. But it was really, I think, from his side and all of the other great Buddhist social justice activists, you know, it's really they're trying to prevent harm is, is at the root of their motivation, not just picking and choosing partisan politics. 
Right. Yeah, in Christianity, they have this phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure everyone's always following it, but it's a very good admonition, you know, that people are good at heart and have and, and certainly have, you know, infinite potential for good. But how do we skillfully oppose the actions that are harmful? Right. And it's hard. It's one of the hardest practices. Like I, I teach the Stanford Compassion Cultivation Training. And usually it's within the first five minutes of the first of the eight weeks of training, people are like, how do I have compassion towards fill in the blank? These days it's Vladimir, Vladimir Putin or whoever it is. And it's like, okay, hang on, pump the brakes. Let's just talk, <laughs> rewind to talk about this. And you still can, seeing, like you said, that the person, even if they're doing so much harm, has potential. And often, and I found, because I taught in prisons for about 15 years, and I think every single one of my students had experienced multiple traumas, like this, you know, and when you understand that, then your heart goes out to this person because you're like, to cause that much harm, you must be in so much pain and have survived so much trauma too so you're not going to condone the harmful actions but like you say separating the person from the actions and still your heart going out to the person and doing whatever you possibly could for them and stopping them from continuing to do harm for sure it's thinking about cause and effect right the, the buddhist view is that yeah. everything happens due to cause and effect people are good at heart so if someone is performing a harmful action, it's because of other causes and conditions That's right. that have come together. Even Vladimir Putin or you know, wh whoever you're really upset about. And uh, some people argue about this, obviously, but there's even more and more. The Buddhist view is so hopeful, you know, that everyone has what's called Buddha nature or the fundamental goodness. But even there's there's growing scientific evidence for it, too, that when you really start to look at some of these famous studies like the Stanford Prison Experiment that purportedly tell us how fundamentally bad people are, the experiments didn't actually pan out the way that yeah. they were publicized at the time. In fact, people needed an awful lot of coercion and force to make them unnaturally behave harmfully to others. It's that the dichotomy is wisdom and ignorance and not good and evil. Like if somebody is acting in a way that seems so-called evil, they're just acting out of ignorance, a profound ignorance about the causes of happiness and the causes of suffering. And they're actually creating even more suffering for themselves through their harmful yeah. actions, which is such a different conceptual paradigm from good and evil. If you say people are evil, so concrete, right? And what's the possibility of redemption if you see somebody is evil, you know, in their heart or something like that? So that's one of the things I love. I think the most about Buddhism is exactly what you said, this mm -hmm. idea of Buddha nature and that infinite potential to transform. Mm. Yeah. I would imagine a lot of people listening to this might be curious about why did you decide to stop being a, a Buddhist nun? You don't have to go into all the details, but I think some people may look at it as a kind of failing or something that, you know, you, mm. you come out of monastic life. But I know many people who have come out of monastic life who are people of great integrity and, and had very mm. good reasons for it. So I wonder, I don't know what's the most skillful way to talk about that here, but you're a teacher of extraordinary integrity and, and great qualities, oh, and I really so. respect your, your journey in mm. life. But what do you think you can share that's of benefit for people to understand 
you know, coming in and out of monasticism? Well, you know, I in the progression of my own teachings and practice, like I said, I become more of a proponent of His Holiness the Dalai Lama's view and his idea that there are ways of presenting kind of these contemplative techniques in a way that's more available to a non-religious audience and the Stanford Compassion Cultivation Training, Cultivating Emotional Balance. And I found more and more that presenting as a monastic, people would be expecting a very traditional approach from me that I wasn't delivering as much anymore, which would be a little bit confusing for them. And then more and more as my life and practice and teachings evolved, I was wondering how important maintaining the monastic life was for me and the way that I was evolving as a teacher. So it was kind of from both directions. I felt like I wasn't so much representing the traditional approach that everybody was expecting from a monastic and not doing that so much anymore. What was really the value of the monastic life? I Sometimes I would be teaching one of these secular trainings and I would find me doing it as a monastic was initially sometimes an obstacle that people couldn't hear me doing anything other than strict traditional Buddhism, even though I would say with my mouth and my words a million times, this is based on Buddhist techniques, but it's not Buddhism. And still they would say, oh, when you taught Buddhism, and I'd say, no, I taught cultivating emotional balance, that wasn't Buddhism. You know, so there was kind of a disconnect a little bit more. And just, I hung on for a long time because I don't take my commitment lightly ever at all. And then there was one point when I went in to teach in robes, one of the first in-person retreats after kind of the lockdown of COVID, and it just felt like it was finished, like it was just a felt sense of like something shifted, even though for 20 years I'd gone everywhere in robes and climbed up mountains in Australia and like I didn't even have leg clothes, but all of a sudden it just felt like something shifted and I felt like I had to pay attention to that. And that hanging on for dear life would not, would just create more of a struggle for me and the people around me. So I, I never thought that I would not live the rest of this life as a monastic, but everything changes, you know, I, yeah, everything changes. And to me, I just needed to be responsive to almost that karmic shift that I felt. And some people may experience it as failure. I was so grateful. And I wrote a letter that I sent out to my closest students when I made the change. And people have been so incredibly supportive. And many people said, oh, I respect you even more for really following your integrity of like, this wasn't the right thing anymore, because that must have been so hard after nearly 20 years. And so I got, I had just received so much kind of kindness and love and support from friends and students mm. through it. I couldn't have, you know, really, yeah, couldn't be more grateful for all the support that people have shown me through the transition, because it has been hard, you know, I, and it hasn't even been a year, actually. It's not quite a year yet, and I feel like I'm kind of inhabiting this next phase of life as an experiment at my advanced age. 
and still trying to figure it out. And there are certain parts of the training that are still there, which I'm really grateful for. Like, I don't have the vows and the robes anymore, but I certainly had all those years of training, and that doesn't just disappear. So I'm grateful for that as well. Yeah, I, I know a couple of other you know, monastic friends who made that decision recently as well, and, and out of out of integrity, you know, that it was the, the decision of greatest integrity to change from being ordained to not ordained. I, and I think that's, for me, that was an important realization from talking to you and a couple of other, you know, monks and nuns. I know that sometimes the decision of greatest integrity would be to move on from being in the in ordained song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that quality that I mentioned before of stubbornness slash determination, like I said, I, you know, I really hung on. And because I didn't, you know, I don't give up anything lightly, but then it became kind of unambiguous at a certain point. And it was just. We talked a lot about, you know, some of the difficulties of gender in Buddhism. I wanted to go all the way to the other side to ask you a little bit about some of the beauty and flexibility and, and acceptance of all the aspects of gender that there are in Buddhism and particularly in Tibetan Buddhism, the Vajrayana teachings, where we're encouraged to fully embrace our female and male aspects. So I thought just as a, a balancing note <laughs> towards some of the other ways we were talking yes. about gender, yeah, can yeah. you talk about this more embracing side of gender, particularly in Tibetan Buddhism, how, how gender equality and fluidity are viewed within it? Well, it's interesting because a lot of that comes or is embodied in Vajrayana practices, which, of course, like originated in northern India and were practiced there before being transmitted to Tibet. And I remember reading something that Tenzin Palmo wrote about some of these Vajrayana practices and saying that, like, the way that they were, that, that they're practiced now in Tibetan. Buddhist ritual is a pale, 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 pale version of what they were meant to be, which was these very transgressive practices. They were meant to literally just kind of blow your mind and destroy all your concrete, you know, conceptions. So I find that even though the theory is still there, it's only my experience, well, this is just my experience, very highly realized beings that sent tend to kind of embody that fluidity, like Lama Yeshe was a totally famous example. And I remember, and Lama Yeshe apparently was a nun in his past life, and I remember when I first saw a picture of Lama Yeshe, which is on the altar at Tushita Meditation Center in early 1991, I remember thinking, oh, how cool, they have got a nun on the altar. Like, I, per I completely perceived female and I've heard this great story that a friend of mine who was a student of Lama she told about how she went into his room one time and he's kind of reclining on the sofa in this very, you know, kind of reclining with his head on his hands in this sort of like almost seductive pose. And her first thought was, oh my God, Lama she's a woman. And then she's like, in her mind, like, no, no, no. And then Lamiashi plays with her and he says, well, what do you think, dear? Am I a man or am I a woman? And she just said, well, Lama, you're a man, of course. And he goes, how do you know? <laughs> and he just fully played with it. And I remember early on, I had met His Holiness Secretaries in Rinpoche in India. And then I came to visit a friend in, in Vancouver and met his sister, Jetson Kushala. And I remember really noticing 
brother and sister, right? And both of them, I felt like, had equal androgyny. Like, it, that would have been my way of thinking about it back then, of like, both of them fully embodied in a really similar way. Just a felt sense of these qualities. And, and my teacher, Kirti Sencha Brimbache, whenever I was with him, I'd always feel like grandmother energy. You just felt this nurturing, beautiful kind of... So I think, you know, definitely I believe that for a lot of these really highly realized beings, they embody that. And still in the institutions, unfortunately, there are these lines. But I do think, yeah, I, I do love that it's held as at least kind of conceptually a value and that it still does exist as a very transgressive practices from early Vajrayana. Yeah. We could talk for ages and we'll have to have you on again <laughs> to expand on some of these topics. But you've agreed to lead a meditation for us, which we'll broadcast in the next episode. Could you tell us a little bit about that meditation now? Yeah, so what I chose to share is a practice that I do, well, I try and do it every chance I get. Every group of students that I have, I try and weave it in. But as I mentioned, I've been especially focused these days on teaching the compassion training and really focusing on compassion and loving kindness. I recently just finished a series on the four immeasurables and did a day-long retreat in the four immeasurables. And one of the kind of turning points that we talk about in the Stanford Compassion Training for broadening our compassion to even people that we don't know, even people we would see somehow as other, is meditating on common humanity. And to me, this is so incredibly powerful. If we can see the common humanity, I've been involved in a couple of ventures not only in the contemplative world, but I just, with a friend, put on our second annual event in Santa Cruz, bringing people of certain misunderstood and marginalized identities together with members of the public for these half-hour conversation. Because the idea is if you can just meet somebody human to human for half an hour, you can never think of them as other and stereotype and judge and dismiss them in the same way. So I just find that this whole idea of <clears throat> common humanity is kind of a through line in so much of what I'm teaching and exploring these days that that's the practice I'd love to lead. Wonderful. Today. Wonderful. Well I look forward to that. And I've been I've been reading a, a few books lately about, you know, what are the what are the solutions to divisiveness in culture? And the the most scientifically backed one seems to be just that is contact. That if people just yes. get into contact with the, with the the people that they're afraid of or that they think they hate, that those feelings generally tend to dissolve. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We had that feedback from the event that I just did. I got. I was just looking at the feedback forms, and people said nothing short of "this just changed my life." Mm -hmm. Like a one half hour conversation with a Muslim or a transgender person or a police officer or a Republican, because we had those identities yeah. also. Meet a real Republican. People were like, <laughs> you know, I, which is not easy in Santa Cruz, but we found wonderful, you know, wonderful dialogue partners. And so people would say that, like, wow, I'll never be the same. Literally, it sounds so hyperbolic, but that was the experience from just, just those meetings. Yeah. Well, Tenjin Choki, thank you for 
such a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate your openness, your kindness, your compassion, the wisdom that comes out of a life of practice and teaching and, and activism. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Scott. Thanks. It's been such a such an illuminating conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks. Thanks for joining me in my conversation with Tenzin Choki. You can learn more about her teachings and work at unlockingtruehappiness.org. This podcast depends on its donors to stay on the air, and we appreciate all the donations that people have given to support our mission over the years. Please consider going to skepticspath.org right now to help keep these interviews and meditations coming to you every week. A Skeptic's Path to Enlightenment is a nonprofit organization, so all your donations are tax-deductible in the U.S. We even accept Bitcoin. To keep up with our podcast, classes, and my upcoming book, How to Train a Happy Mind, sign up for our newsletter on our website, join our private meditation discussion group, or follow us on social media where we go by the name Skeptic's Path. We wish you a wonderful day.